Well, good morning, everybody. Nice to hear all the chatter. We need to get started. So sorry for interrupting. But good morning, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church on this beautiful day that the Lord has blessed us with. I'm going to invite Levi to come and to read John chapter 9 for us. Thank you. Good morning, church. I'm going to read from John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. While others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they went and said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How, then, does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. 
one thing I do know, that I was blind and now I see. Then they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have already told you and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that he had ca they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Thank you. I am convinced that one of the worst things we can do to our children is to forbid them to ask questions. Yes, sometimes they will ask you, how did the baby get in mommy's tummy? And you will have to tailor your answer as needed. But any time we shut down the freedom to inquire, then it usually shows that something isn't quite as it should be. Maybe we are insecure about that particular area of life we're being asked about. Maybe we have an inconsistency that has been flagged up by the question. Maybe we just haven't really thought things through for ourselves. And it's an especially dangerous thing, and sad to say, an especially common thing in Christian circles. Not just with children, but more generally, there's a certain feeling around church that there are some questions you just cannot ask. Someone in a church community found asking questions like, well, why do we trust the Bible? Why is sex outside marriage harmful? Why do we go to church? Can usually hear in return, we just do, it just is, we just do. And I should say, just because many Christians don't like answering those sorts of questions doesn't mean that there aren't good answers to them. There are. I want to say, ask questions. And in fact, it's only if we have the freedom to ask questions that we will ever find security in our convictions, our convictions about God, about Jesus, about church, about right and wrong, about parenting. 
And we're looking at a part of the Bible today with many questions in it. I don't know if you noticed that. Lots of questions and interrogations. But what this chapter reveals is that it's the one who honestly asks and thinks through his questions about Jesus that actually finds him. Over the summer months, we've spent a few weeks looking at John's gospel, looking at specific parts of his account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And actually, John writes these things so that we will ask questions. He tells us at the end of this book that Jesus did many more signs than he's recorded in the gospel. And he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John is saying, read it and ask the question. And we've said this every time we've been in John's gospel. He wants us to ask the question, who would do a thing like that? Who would do a thing like that? So this is going to be our last week for now, looking at these signs in John's gospel. This is sign number six. And we're asking the question, who opens blind eyes? Fittingly, this chapter opens with a question. Jesus and his disciples, they come across a beggar. He is blind. In fact, he's been blind since birth. He's never been able to see. And of all of the possible responses to seeing a blind beggar at the side of the road, this is possibly not the best response. The disciples use him as a case study to try and solve a theological conundrum. Why was he born blind? Why would something like that happen to this guy? And it's one of the greatest questions that we ever ask, isn't it? How many of us here have had sleepless nights Days, weeks, months of deep grief wrestling with why? Why this? Why now? Why her? Why me? And in response to that why question, Jesus shows us here that God's purposes are bigger than you think. God's purposes are bigger than you think. Because what immediately comes to the fore is that Jesus' disciples have a very small view of God, a very narrow view of what God is like. As far as they're concerned, they already know the answer to this question, they think. Because there's only one possibility to explain why this man would have been born blind. Someone must have sinned. That's all they can see. So their question to Jesus is, who sinned? this man or his parents that he was born blind? Did the guy sin in the womb? I mean, how laughable is this even idea? Did he sin in the womb and so he was punished by being made blind? Or was it because his parents were particularly sinful and they were punished by being given a blind child? What a view of the world. What a view of God this is to hold, isn't it? I mean, is this all that God is concerned with? just dishing out people's comeuppance for their sins. That's how he views us as human beings. That gives God something to do. Spots a sin, punishes. Spots a sin, punishes. But I wonder how many of us have felt that that's what God might be like. 
not from the comfortable position of an onlooker wondering about someone else's suffering, but right there, right in the eye of the storm, to see heartbreaking circumstances, to see those that you love go through pain and distress, to have your own hopes and ambitions crumble because of some illness or loss or injustice even, and to wonder, is God punishing me? Am I the cause of this? Did I do something to offend God that he would allow this to happen? The answer is not a simple one. The Bible teaches that actually, in a sense, all suffering in this world is because of sin. God didn't create the world like this. He created it good, a world in harmony with human existence and humans in perfect harmony with God and each other. But our first ancestors sinned. They rebelled against God. They set themselves up as their own God. And with sin, the world fell out of harmony. And now sickness and conflict and death are the regular discordant notes that have entered the world and are still ringing around us today. And it all comes from sin. That's where its origin is. It all comes from sin in the world. But that is a very, very different thing from saying that all suffering has a definite, identifiable cause and effect which you can trace back to an individual's sin. There are times when bad choices that we make lead to suffering for ourselves or for others. We know that, don't we? But it is most often the case that we simply do not see the whys of suffering and sorrow and loss. And we are not given the insight to be the judge of who sinned. Because actually Jesus here says God is about more than that. The only answer to the question is not who sinned that this happened. No, Jesus says God is bigger than that. Look at his answer in verse 3. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I think at first reading that's hard for us to take in, isn't it? That God could use something like congenital blindness to show his works. I mean, this almost goes against every instinct that we have, I think. But just see what God, just see what Jesus is saying to us here. He's saying God's purposes are bigger than you think. He's doing more than you realize. The disciples see the blind beggar in his pitiful state, and in fact, their first response is not pity. It's to use him as a theological debating point. How humiliating that must have been for the man. But Jesus doesn't view him like that. And Jesus tells us that God doesn't view him as just some being to be punished for sin. No, God wants to show his glorious works 
through this man. What else would you expect from Jesus? I mean, he says there, and something he said in a previous chapter in John's Gospel, that he says, I am the light of the world, in verse 5. He has come to illuminate those who are in darkness. And that's the work he must do. And that's what he does for this man. And the means that Jesus uses here are unusual. It's, it's hard to be sure just precisely what point is being made. But undoubtedly, something extraordinary takes place. Jesus makes mud using the dirt and his own spit. And he smears it onto the eyes of the man and sends him off to the pool of Siloam to go and wash. And then he can see. Jesus is the one who created everything, who created humanity from the dust of the earth. Are we getting a small reminder here that the one who created human beings from the dust of the earth can grant sight to this man from the dust of the earth? John tells us in the opening chapter of this gospel that Jesus is the true light which gives light to everyone. What more pointed picture of this could there be than the man who had never in his life seen even a chink of light is granted sight. And so through him, the works of God are displayed. The identity and the mission of God's Messiah, our Savior, is seen. And in fact, God's works are still being displayed through this miracle as we have these words read to us today. Do not be amazed that God can do this through the cruelty of blindness. Because this is the God who is able to bring glorious things from the death of his son on the cross. Think of it. The son of God, in all of his perfection and purity and holiness suffers the pain, the humiliation, the injustice at the hands of men to be executed on a cross. Any onlooker would say, what good could ever come from such a thing, right? What good could ever come from such a thing? And yet, even from such a dark moment in human history, God displays his most glorious works, because there on the cross, the price of salvation for sinners is paid. We've been thinking recently in the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3, we read that the Lord makes everything beautiful in its time, even a blood-soaked cross. And this is no abstract thing. This applies here and now to you today. Yes, life is often hard, complicated, painful. And in the midst of what can feel like chaos at times, we do wonder, don't we, where is God? Is he doing anything? We come to church on Sunday, we sing about his sovereignty and his love, and then we see the chaos of our own lives and we 
we grieve trying to fit these ideas together that the loving, all-powerful God exists and loves me, and yet my family, we're going through this. And without giving us all the answers, without being glib or denying the pain and the the hardship of all of that, Jesus wants us to stop. And he tells us that the only way we will find hope, comfort, and even peace in the midst of whatever you're going through is to be open to this possibility, that God's purposes are bigger than what you can see right now. And that even through this, God's works can be displayed. I've seen this. You've seen this. The family that comes to faith through their daughter's death A church family that rallies round another family with a sick child. The young man that comes to faith in Jesus through cancer. The one who finds the Lord Jesus granting them strength for each day, even when they live with chronic pain. Here are some of the works of God on display. They were all unexpected. And bigger than could have ever been imagined at the time, but they're all real stories. Dear friends, Jesus wants us to know that God's purposes are bigger than you think. Believe that. And this scene in John 9, the blind man is granted sight. It doesn't remain rosy for long, does it? The the man's neighbors are perplexed. You see that from verse 8. Uh, so unthinkable is such a miracle that they're open to the possibility that they've just mistaken his identity. But one of the things that's so important in this chapter, and in fact throughout John's gospel, is the testimony of the witnesses. You'll hear Jesus referring to that lots of times in John's gospel. And that's what settles the debate among the, the neighbors here in verse 9. The man simply says, I am the man. Yeah, it is me. He straightforwardly testifies to what has happened. He doesn't engage in any speculation. He simply reports the facts. That really stands out in verse 11. The man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes, said, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. The facts, no speculation And I don't know what it is that possesses the neighbors to bring the man to the local religious leaders. I probably don't assume that it's malice on their parts, but rather being so amazed by what has happened in their midst, well, they want the the religious authorities to give their take on it. And so these Pharisees, verse 13, they launch an investigation. And they too are presented with this remarkably straightforward testimony. But here's the thing, their verdict is destined to be skewed even before they start. And that is for one very simple reason. They hate Jesus. 
And the Pharisees show us here that hating Jesus leads to hating truth. Hating Jesus leads to hating truth. Because their hatred is what will lead them to exhaust every possible avenue to discredit Jesus, even if that means rejecting what is true. And it happens in three stages. Let me show you them. Stage one is nitpicking, nitpicking. They see the day of healing as an opportunity to dismiss Jesus. You see this in verse 14. It comes to their attention that it was a Sabbath day that Jesus had given this man sight. Uh, We saw this when we looked at the healing of the paralyzed man in chapter 5. The Sabbath was the Jewish day of rest. Uh, By God's command, it was the day of rest. No work was to be performed on that day. But the religious authorities had supplemented God's command with an array of specific commands, really to protect God's commandment. So someone had worked out exactly how many steps you could take on the Sabbath without breaking it. And so here is an easy way for them to dismiss Jesus. Well, he healed the blind man, didn't he? That's work. And don't you know that we have one of those rules in place that says if you apply any medication to someone and it is not urgent, that too is work. And so here they think, well, we don't need to worry about anything else because if the guy is breaking the Sabbath, they put it in verse 16, then he is not from God. But it's a weak argument because it succeeds only if we forget that the most amazing miracle has just happened. They might think the Sabbath has been broken, but that doesn't change the fact that a man who was born blind is now able to see. And it's precisely what causes division among the Pharisees. You see that in verse 16. Well, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? That's the question they ask among themselves. So that then leads on to stage two. Stage one was nitpicking. Stage two is discrediting the witness. Discrediting the witness. They want to undermine the testimony of the healed man. And you see that from verse 18. The authorities did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. Now, that would be convenient, wouldn't it? You could officially say that we've done the fact-checking and we have debunked the theory that the man who was born blind can now see. So they call for the man's parents. Maybe they can find an inconsistency in their story, but the parents are really no help to them. And in fact, really, they come to say two things and two things only. Yes, he is our son, and yes, he was born blind, but as for anything else, we don't know. And they're not willing to say more than that because of stage three in the process. Stage one is nitpicking. Stage two is discrediting the witness. Stage three is threats and persecution. There's a threat hanging in the air. You see that in verse 22, which means the parents, they don't want to say too much. They know that their son has been miraculously healed, and he surely told them that Jesus healed him, but they prefer to let him do the talking because the Jewish authorities have made it very clear that if anyone confesses Jesus to be Christ, if they profess Jesus to be the Messiah, 
then they are to be put out of the synagogue. And that means more than being escorted off the premises. It means more than just being banned from worship in the synagogue. You see, so much of Jewish life and community life was wrapped up in the synagogue. It was right at the heart of it all. So for someone to be put out of the synagogue was to be put out of the community. This was no small thing. It was to declare someone to be unsafe to be around. It was to cancel them, we were to use today's language, to cancel them. You do not want to hear from this person anymore. We're putting them away. And in the end, it's this punishment that's dished out to the healed man. Because when he's brought in a second time, from verse 24, he just doesn't play their game, does he? So you see there's the, there's the threat, there's an intimidation in them saying, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. It's their way of trying to put him under some kind of oath. You know, it's like, uh, come on now, honor God in your answer. He's a sinner, right? But it's this man who is utterly blind in verse 1, who as we work through this chapter, he sees more and more and more. In marked contrast, the religious authorities, who in theory have this great clarity of knowledge, this great understanding of Scripture, as we work through the chapter, they become more and more blind. And the difference is this, while hating Jesus leads to hating truth, for this blind man, pursuing truth leads to finding Jesus. The man starts with his explanation to the neighbors. Verse 11, what did he say to them? He said, the man who is called Jesus, he healed me. That's where he starts. And as he goes over his testimony again and again, he reflects on what has happened. And the Pharisees ask him in verse 17, well, what do you think about Jesus? And his reflection on the truth has moved him on a bit. He's no longer just the man who is called Jesus. What does he say? He says, oh, I think he's a prophet. And it's in this final exchange with the Pharisees that things come into even greater clarity for this man. It does seem that he tries to have a bit of fun with his interrogators because they ask him again, how did he open your eyes? And he says, in effect, boy, you guys are really interested in him. Is it because you want to be his followers? Uh, there's, there's surely some irony in his answer there. They're not impressed. And they protest. They say, well, we are disciples of Moses. And we know that God spoke through him. But we don't know where Jesus comes from. In other words, we don't know if Jesus is God's man or not. And now suddenly the man who was blind, he sees even more. Here's what goes on in his head. In fact, he articulates it, doesn't he? He says... You know, no one has ever heard of someone who was born blind regaining their sight. But Jesus has done that for me. And you guys, who are supposed to be the most spiritual men in all of Israel, have no idea where he comes from. And if Jesus wasn't from God, then how would he be able to do anything like this? You see, the man followed 
the truth wherever it led. And it led him to greater and greater clarity. But it also led to him being cast out, thrown out of the synagogue, put outside the community of God's people, deemed unfit to be a trusted part of his community. This trial scene in John 9, I haven't, I haven't uh, double-checked this, but it must be the longest stretch of John's gospel where Jesus isn't present. You know, there's a lot of talk about Jesus, but Jesus is somewhere else for most of this chapter. And it's as if John wants to get across to us something of the cost of showing your allegiance to Jesus Christ. And I think we must be under no illusions. What we see taking place in John 9 is still alive and well in the world that we live in today. People hate Jesus. People hate Jesus. And all of these stages of rejecting his followers are at play today. The nitpicking. If I can see some measure of inconsistency in you, if you laughed at an inappropriate joke at work, then I don't need to listen to anything else that you have to say. If I saw you losing your temper with one of your kids, then I don't need to listen to any of this Jesus stuff. There's the nitpicking. There is the discrediting of the testimony of God's people. I mean, the simplicity of the man's testimony in John 9 was, uh, was, was remarkable, but it was undeniable. It was backed up by tangible evidence. His eyes were open, and yet hatred of Jesus would cause them to deny that. And so today, the alcoholic who finds Jesus and is delivered from alcoholism well, we can write that off as Christianity simply being a crutch that he could have found anywhere else. The homosexual who now believes in Jesus and lives her life on the basis that she belongs to Jesus Christ first, not sexual attraction, and joyfully lives a life of celibacy following Jesus, well, that's easy to dismiss as them being brainwashed subject to conversion therapy. The man who lived a violent life, who even spent time in prison, he believes in Jesus now, and he's gentle. He's tender with his wife and kids. It shows that prison works is the way we can discredit that. The young woman who was weighed down with guilt for some of the bad choices in life, but then she met Jesus found that he had taken away all her sins, big and small, and she lives in the assurance that she doesn't need to feel the weight of the guilt of those before God anymore. Her whole outlook on life is transformed. Yet we hate to hear these things. We want to attribute those changes to something else. These are simple testimonies. These are real testimonies, not just made up off the top of my head, real testimonies but they represent the profound change that Jesus brings to a life. And often such as the hatred that people have towards Jesus, they would prefer that those changes had not taken place. But this is what Jesus does. And as followers of Jesus, we must not be afraid to simply speak of what he has done for me. 
Of course, stage three is painful. Threats and persecution. But it's where this chapter ends that actually enables God's people to go through stage three. Because Jesus hears what has happened to the man. He's been cast out. Jesus is not oblivious to what's, what's gone on in this man's life. He's, he's not oblivious that this man is suffering, that this man is suffering because of his openness to find out about Jesus. And when he finds that out, Jesus seeks him out, comes to him, reveals himself to him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And here is the openness of the man. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you've seen him. And it's he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus came to the man that he might the man who's been thrust out of his own community, Jesus comes that he might bring him into the greatest community of all, into a relationship with him. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus keeps telling us that he and the Father are one. And so he brings his followers into this most amazing relationship, not just with Jesus, but with the Son and the Father together. This is the new community that we belong to, so that even if every community on earth said that there was no room for us there, we would have this thing that could never be taken from us, that we belong to Christ. The honest inquiry of the truth led to Jesus, who revealed himself as the Son of Man, I wonder today, each one of us, how honestly have we inquired of the truth? I guess a test of that would be, have we read the Gospels for ourselves? Or have we been happy simply to accept other people's dismissing of them? Have we been happy to write off the Christian faith as just another superstition? Or have we pursued the truth for ourselves? I will warn you, pursuing the truth and letting it take you where it takes you can be unsettling because you may just find that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and that he really is who he claimed he is and that has implications for you, for me. He, Jesus identifies himself as the son of man. The Son of Man was a term used for the coming Messiah into whose hands would be given judgment of the whole world. And here he picks up on that theme. Uh, Jesus says, for judgment, verse 39, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees, they overhear what Jesus says. And they say to him, well, are you saying that we are blind? And there's something really troubling about Jesus' response. He says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. 
But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. He says to these Pharisees, if only you were blind, if only you couldn't see the truth before you, but you live in willful blindness, willful rejection of the Son of Man, willing to reject truth because it doesn't conform with their preference. In John 3, Jesus says this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This is the natural state of all of us. I don't say this, I don't read these words to stand over anyone. This is, this is where my heart was and every, each one of our hearts was. We love darkness rather than light. But praise God, he sends his son. And when we read of him and we come to him open-hearted, open-minded, that is when he opens our eyes to see Jesus, to love the light more than the darkness. And this is what he can do for you. This is what he will do for you. You come to him in faith. John says these things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you might have life in his name. My prayer is that we all know that life today. And then we can enter into the great comfort of knowing God is doing far more than we realize or can see with our eyes because his purposes are bigger than we can imagine. What a privilege to be brought into that. And I pray that would be a comfort to us today. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus, the one who opens blind eyes. Thank you that in this example of those physical eyes that were opened, we do see a picture of spiritual eyes that all of us need to have opened. And we thank you that that is what Jesus has come to do, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And I pray, Father, that everyone here would know the saving power of Jesus today. Let's just take a moment to say the words of the grace to one another for this new week. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. And thank you for being with us today.